Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. Welcome to Political Rewind. Doris Kearns Goodwin is one of the most celebrated presidential historians of our time. Each of her seven books has been met with critical and popular acclaim. Among her many awards, she's won the Pulitzer Prize, the Lincoln Leadership Prize, and the Carnegie Medal. When we sat down in our studio to talk with her about her new book, Leadership in Turbulent Times, she was in the middle of a grueling touring schedule. But as you'll hear, Goodwin brought her usual passion and excitement to talking about history with me. Doris Kearns Goodwin, thank you for being here for Political Rewind. It's a real treat to have you in the studio. I'm very glad to be with you, Bill. So your your new book, Leadership in Turbulent Times, I think I either read or saw a conversation you had in another media setting where you said the idea for this book really started developing as long as five years ago, right? Right. I mean, the title was because each of my guys, the four guys I was writing about, I do call them that. It may sound disrespectful, but I lived with them for so long, 10 years, 7 years, 6 years. Lincoln, Teddy, Franklin, and LBJ lived and led in turbulent times. And then it just happens that the title tends to be relevant today. Yeah, I do think it is remarkable. And a little bit later, I'd like to discuss the fact that it's really kind of difficult to read virtually any page of your book and not think of the current situation we're in. But if it's okay with you, I'd like to hold that I for later in the conversation. <laughs> <laughs> I love the fact that you call them your guys. And the reason I do is that you humanize them. And that seems to me to be important in terms of what this book is about. These are not leaders living on pedestals. These are real flesh and blood human beings so to call them guys makes them more vulnerable, makes us see them as people who have struggles that are not necessarily unlike our own. No, that's really what I wanted to do. I mean, I was in a college audience um, talking about leadership lessons from the White House, and a college student stood up and he said, but how can I ever become one of them? They're too remote. They're on Mount Rushmore. They're on the currency. So I realized if I started when they run for office the first time, Lincoln's 23, Teddy's 23, LBJ, it's sort of there from the time he's four years old, and Franklin is 28. And then they will struggle, just as you say. They will go through failure. They're going to have to learn from it. They'll be too cocky. They'll make mistakes. Then we as young people, um, or they as young people, me not being as young anymore, can, can learn from their struggles and their triumphs. What's interesting, too, about this book is um, you have written separate books about each of these four people these four guys in the leadership book, and drill down clearly very deeply into their lives in individual books. Tell me about the process of extracting from what you learned as you wrote their biographies to put together this book, which focuses on how they exemplify leadership in various ways. Yeah, even though there might have been some thoughts about leadership in the other books, I was also writing about their colleagues and their families and what was going on in the history at the time. And so when I really started looking about where did their ambition come from, when did they first see themselves as a leader, was it the man or the times or the times making the man, those were questions that I used to ask myself in graduate school when we would all sit around at night talking about such things. 
And I didn't have the answers from the other books, so it meant I had to go back to their first campaigns. I had to go back to some of the writings they did and other people talking about them when they were young. And then they all go through a serious difficulty in their lives, and I hadn't studied that as fully. So it was a much more of an adventure. I was really glad to be able to do it. Then I thought when I started, oh, no, this, I thought, oh, no, you never do. <laughs> yeah, why five years? It always takes me long. I mean, that took me 10 years to write Lincoln. You know, my only fear is that I, I don't mind living with these dead presidents forever. It may seem an odd profession. My only fear is that in the afterlife, there'll be a panel of all the presidents that I've ever studied, and everyone is going to tell me every single thing I missed about them. And the first person to scream out will be Lyndon Johnson. How come those books on the Roosevelt's were twice as long as the books you wrote about me? I can just hear him. <laughs> <laughs> and and as we'll discuss in a little while, you could hear him because you, in fact, uh, spent time working for him. So I have to tell you that in reading almost everything that you've written, I have a particular affection for No Ordinary Time. First of all, it's one of the most extraordinary sprawling adventure stories you could ever read. It reads like great fiction because the lives that Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt lived during World War II were truly remarkable. But again, one of the other reasons that I thought it was such a wonderful book is, again, you captured in them people who seemed almost like regular human beings living through such a difficult period of our history, World War II. Yeah, in fact, the setting of the book is really almost the second floor of the White House, yeah. where a whole series of people are living so that they can be ready for this cocktail hour that FDR wanted to have every night during World War II so he could relax and replenish his energies. So Harry Hopkins, his foreign policy advisor, comes for dinner one night, sleeps over, never leaves until the war comes to an end. His secretary, Missy LeHand, is there. A friend of Eleanor's, Lorena Hickok, is there. Winston Churchill is there for weeks and months at a time. So I kept imagining what incredible conversations they must have had in their bathrobes at oh. night as they gathered together in that suite Oh, could upstairs. you imagine being invited to, be to that there. cocktail party? Oh, I would have. And, you know, the funny thing is, so what happened is I mentioned on a radio program in Washington that I wished I had looked when I was up there with LBJ when I was 24 to see where everyone would have slept during Roosevelt's time. But I wasn't thinking in those terms then. So Hillary called me up at the radio station. She invited me to sleep overnight in the White House so we could then wander the corridor together and figure out where everyone had slept 50 years earlier. So two weeks later, I went to a state dinner, after which between midnight and 2 a.m., the president, Mrs. Clinton, my husband, and I, with my map, figured out, yes, Chelsea is sleeping where Harry Hopkins was. The Roosevelt's were sleeping where the Clintons were, and we were sleeping in Winston Churchill's bedroom that night. Wow. No way I could sleep. He was in the corner <laughs> drinking. <laughs> So Franklin Roosevelt, of course, he has a particular—we um, in, in Georgia—I mean, I'm a Chicagoan, but I've been in Georgia for 35 years, and the first time that I visited the Little White House, it, it was one of the most awe-inspiring places I think I've ever been. And, of course, you've been down there. Um, it's where he died. But it's also where his creative genius bloomed. He got in his specially built car and drove through the countryside and saw farms— with no lights, with no power. And that led to rural electrification, for goodness sake. There's no question that his experience at Warm Springs when he built the rehabilitation center for his polio patient friends, and they came down there and he showed himself vulnerable to them. And he gave them joy in life again. It wasn't just swimming in the giant pool. He had water polo, tag, wheelchair dances, cocktail hours there too. And I think it gave him an empathy that he hadn't had before not only for other polio patients, but for anyone for whom fate had dealt an unkind hand. 
And then, as you say, by being in this area for so long, he saw what poverty did, lack of electricity did. And it made him a, a much greater leader than I think he would have been. So that experience of going through that crucible of polio and then healing himself and healing the others around um, through res responding to the joy in life again was an extraordinary thing. What is it like for you as a historian who's written so much about his life to walk into the little White House and see the unfinished portrait? Yeah, it's, it's such an eerie thing to know that he was sitting for that portrait when he had the final um, illness set in. And I could just picture him sitting there, and he was, he was lively that morning, mm -hmm. and then all of a sudden it struck. And it's such a small place, the Warm Springs yeah. thing. You have to walk through somebody's bedroom to get to the bathroom. It just shows how, how easy he could be comfortable in different settings. You know, a, the Hyde Park Mansion, the White House, but yet Warm Springs. He had a huge affection, and everybody believed that when he came down here that last time, because he had been ill for that entire year before with congestive heart failure, that he would rejuvenate, because he always did when he came here. Even as they were coming, the Secret Service said, I think the guy's going to, I think the boss is going to do it this time. Yeah. And of course he didn't. But the amazing thing is all over the world, and especially all over America, people felt lonely, they said, because their friend had died. That's what he was able to achieve. And that's one of the things I talk about in the book is how you communicate with the citizens. Those fireside chats were so conversational they made everybody feel like he was talking to them directly in their living room. There's a story of a construction worker coming home one night, and his partner said, where are you going? He said, well, my president's coming to talk to me in my living room. It's only right I'd be there to greet him when he comes. So that intimacy that he established really created, I think, the strength of his presidency that Bond did. I, I'm talking all around your book, and I don't want to continue that. I want to really talk specifically about what you wrote, but I do need to tell you one quick story. You sure I, can. I went to the Little White House with Ken Burns when he was finishing up his documentary on the, the Roosevelt. And we were there. It was extraordinary because it was the first time that the Theodore Roosevelt and the Franklin Roosevelt families had held their reunion in Warm Springs at the Little White House. And so it was remarkable just in that sense alone. But it was also extraordinary because at one point I said to Ken Burns, do you notice that the Theodore side of the family are every bit as loosey-goosey and kind of odd as he was, whereas the Franklin Hyde Park side are the button-down people? <laughs> <laughs> That's great. I remember I went to a reunion once of them as well. And everything was going well until somebody asked, so what caused the split in the first place? And then, oh, my God, they went all over it again. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk now very specifically about leadership in turbulent times. Here's the questions that you ask at the beginning of the book. Are leaders born or made? Where does ambition come from? How does adversity affect the growth of leadership? Do the times make the leader or does the leader shape the times? How can a leader infuse a sense of purpose and meaning uh, into people's lives, and what's the difference between power, title, and leadership? And then a really crucial one. Is leadership possible without a purpose larger than personal ambition? And especially in regard to that question, you quote Abigail Adams writing to her son, John Quincy Adams, uh, in a line in which she says, the habits of a vigorous mind are formed in contending with difficulties, great necessities, call out great virtues. That line is crucial to your entire book. Absolutely, in two ways, actually. I mean, for their personal lives, they all went through great adversity and became stronger at the other end. You know, it doesn't always happen that way. I mean, Ernest Hemingway said, everyone is broken by life, but some people are stronger in the broken places. I mean, Lincoln suffered a, a depression so deep 
that his friends took all knives and scissors and razors from his room. He wasn't sure he was ever going to be able to accomplish the things he had dreamed of from the time he first went to the state legislature. Even then, he knew he wanted to leave the world a better place. And his friend came to his side and said, you must rally or you will die. And he said, I know that, and I'd just as soon die now, but I've not yet accomplished anything to make any human being remember that I have lived. It's extraordinary that somebody thinks that way. But that became his lodestar, and it got him out of that depression and back into the—and the, even though he's going to lose many times again, before he would succeed in becoming the dark horse candidate for the presidency, his resilience kept him going. Teddy Roosevelt loses his wife and his mother on the same day in the same house in New York. His wife, it's a staggering story. His wife was uh, uh, died essentially right after giving birth to their— To their uh, child. —daughter. And his mother had come, only 49 years old, the mother, to take care of her, and she got typhoid fever, and the same day they both died— but then what happened is he goes to the Badlands in order to recover, and he's there for two years. He becomes a cowboy, essentially, outpacing depression, he says, by being on that horse 15 hours a day. But he becomes a man of the West as well as the man of the East. He said he never would have been president if it hadn't been for that. Not only did it ensure his love of nature, which becomes his conservation legacy, but he became a larger figure in people's minds. He was a romantic cowboy, not just the guy from the East. So that changed him. Well, it, also, of course, what contributes to to how Theodore Roosevelt transformed himself was the fact that he'd been, as you point out to us, such a sickly child, had struggled uh, so much uh, and, and felt so weak and helpless much of the time. And, and he did—there was a challenge he began to try to overcome, I think even before the tragedy of his wife and mother dying on the same day, right? He— he became the great physical specimen that we think of when we think of Teddy Roosevelt. Exactly. I mean, he built himself from a very timid and very ill-looking child into that exactly, as you say, the strenuous life man. But that adversity changed him. Obviously, as we've talked, Franklin Roosevelt's polio was fundamental in making the empathetic leader that we came he? to know. How he was, was in his late when... 30s when he got his polio. You describe him waking up one morning— 1921, is that you're right? Feeling something just wasn't right. Yeah, it's incredible. I mean, he just feels, and he thinks, well, what? maybe I'll just exercise today. And he goes swimming, and he's walking with the kids. And then all of a sudden, he comes back, and he's just so tired, he can't even take off his wet bathing suit. He goes upstairs, and he's never able to walk again for the rest of his life on yeah. his own power. I mean, it was that quick it hit. So first we have Abraham Lincoln, who has some, he's early... He has some failures, but he ends up in the legislature. He sees himself transforming Illinois through what's essentially infrastructure legislation. He cannot get it through. He feels terribly defeated by by that and other things that happen in his life. And as you say, he goes into this deep, deep depression that perhaps he will never be able to pull himself out of. So we have him there. Theodore Roosevelt goes through this awful, awful um, loss of a wife and mother, which is so uh, debilitating to him. You tell us that his daughter, Alice, named after his wife, he couldn't even use her name. Correct. So he goes into retreat, goes to the Badlands for two years. Franklin Roosevelt has polio, but it seems to me he goes through a slightly different calculation. He retreats from the public eye, right? Um, but I, I'm not quite sure. Does he go through the same kind of depression and self-searching that the other two had before him? 
Well, he certainly does go through a, a hidden depression. I mean, Missy Lehand, his secretary, was with him on the boat in Florida when he was trying to recover. And she said there'd be days when he couldn't come out until noon, and then his cheery self would come back once again. So he wasn't sure he'd ever be able to resume a political career. In fact, in 1924, when he went to speak at the Democratic Convention for Al Smith, who was running for president, he had to practice moving from the place where he'd be sitting to the podium over and over again. He could have fallen in front of thousands of people, and he took that risk. And when he finally got up there and he smiled his smile and he gave the happy warrior speech, then he knew, maybe I can make it back. But then still after that was Warm Springs, rehabilitation, and he never did learn to walk on his own power again, though he thought he would, but it was good enough that he was in a wheelchair, even though the country didn't see that fully. Your description of FDR getting up to give that speech, of his determination to walk uh, to the stage at Madison Square Garden, is so powerful. It tells us so much about the drive, the ambition, but it also tells us about fighting against frailty. Oh, absolutely. I mean, not only when he had to walk to give that speech, but earlier he had to strengthen his back muscles and his chest muscles. So he would ask to be lifted from the wheelchair onto the library floor. He would crawl around the floor for hours to strengthen his back. And then he would try and take the steps one at a time, hoisting himself up by the banisters. And then when he finally got to the top with sweat pouring from his face, he would celebrate, you know, every small win we have to celebrate. That was his way, that optimistic temperament. If when we ask the question, are leaders born or made? He was lucky to have been born with an optimistic temperament. Lincoln was born with empathy, I'm convinced, and with a gift for language. Teddy was had a photographic memory and this extraordinary curiosity, and LBJ just had unbounded energy. But most of the qualities are the ones you develop as you grow. I mean, leaders are made by taking their talents. Teddy would say, you take the talents that you have and you develop ordinary talents to an extraordinary degree by hard, sustained work. And I believe that. And all my guys worked really hard. Well, t Teddy and Franklin did share in common just an incredible zest for life and a, and a desire to rally the American people in the most positive ways possible, yes? Oh, yes. And they, they both loved being in the center of attention. I mean, Teddy's daughter Alice said about him that he wanted to be in the center so badly that he wanted to be the baby at the baptism and the bride at the wedding and the corpse at the funeral. But on the other hand, at a certain point, that desire to be in the center transferred itself to an ambition for something larger, to, to, to the square deal, to somehow deal with the problems of the industrial order and make it for the rich and the poor, the capitalist and the wage worker. And that's when you become a great leader, when it's not just your personal ambition, but somehow it's for that larger cause, whether it's the company you're running or the community you're a part of or, or the country. All four of them, you tell us, were storytellers. I think that's important because what moves people, Lincoln said, people said to him, why do you tell so many stories? He said, because people remember stories with a beginning, a middle, and an end better than facts and figures. And when you think about his great addresses, we remember the beauty of the language but they often were telling the story of where America had come from on slavery, where it was then, and where he hoped it wanted to go. You're giving them a vision for the future. Similarly for Lyndon Johnson, when he was talking about what would happen if we desegregated the South, he had a vision of what the South would be like as part of the Union again. It would grow. It would be economic prosper. It would no longer have to deal with the same problem in the same way. And he told where it had come from and where it went to. Storytelling is hardwired in our brain, I think. They think of the old days when people sat around a fire 
and one generation is telling the story of what happened to that previous generation before the written word. So I think we respond emotionally to stories. Yeah, and I think you just said it. I think that um, the power of a um, of storytelling for a leader, in these cases presidents, is they teach us where we've been and where they want us to go. Exactly right. I mean, they provide a narrative for us. I mean, that's the key to a leader who wants to win an election. Um, it's not a matter of just a series of platforms or promises or zings in a debate. It's can you provide a story for people that they want to go together with you to that future place. I mean, FDR was great about that. I mean, he was able to, even at the early days before we got into World War II, and he would set targets that were so much larger, just like the man on the moon with JFK. He mm -hmm. decided he wanted to have 50,000 planes produced in 1940. And they said, it's impossible. We only have 4,000 planes. He said, the American people like to have a target. It's sort of the end of a story if you yeah. can create that. And I think all these leaders understood that. Let's take a break right now. More with Doris Kearns Goodwin in a moment. Welcome back to this special edition of Political Rewind. I'm talking with the acclaimed presidential historian Doris Kearns Goodwin about her new book, Leadership in Turbulent Times. One of the things that's interesting is that certainly we are well aware that eventually, uh, after struggling with depression, making his uh, comeback in, and, and ending up as president of the United States, we know that Abraham Lincoln's great achievement, as you describe in the book, is going to be the Emancipation Proclamation. We know that FDR is going to have his first 100 days where he puts in place these remarkable social programs that everyone around him is saying, this is ridiculous, you'll never get this done, and he does. And we know that after uh, Kennedy is assassinated, Johnson embarks a Southern Former Southern senator says, I will make civil rights uh, the top of my agenda. So those stories are well known, and we'll, we'll explore them just a little bit. What's interesting to me is I've, I knew very little about the coal strike that Teddy Roosevelt faced as president, and yet you say that that was a crucial cauldron in which he developed his leadership. Would you tell us a little about sure. that? Sure. I mean, it was the most formidable deadlock in the history of the country at that time. Um, the miners had gone on strike, and it went on for six months, and the coal barons were unwilling to sit at a table with them to even discuss the possibility of dealing with the grievances. And it, as the strike went on, New England had no coal, and hospitals would be closing down, schools would be closing down. It was a real devastating potential circumstance. But the president at that time had no power to intervene in a, in a strike. Presidents had nothing to do with the laissez-faire economy, so the idea that he would call labor and management together seemed an impossible thing, but he did it. So he invites them to the White House, and the coal barons are still so unwilling to talk that they treat the miner very badly at this session where the president is sitting there in the middle of it all. But smartly, what he did was he had a stenographer at the beginning. He said, I'm going to take notes about this session. And afterwards, he publishes the notes in a pamphlet and it makes public sentiment go on the side of the miners, which persuades the coal barons that we better do Because something. the coal barons are so arrogant in their behavior in the meetings. Absolutely. I mean, they just say, I'm not even talking to, like, this man who works with his hands. They were, they were not living in the, in the areas where the coal mines were anymore. Perhaps those miners were much more attuned to their workers. But now they're absentee, they're financiers, they're living somewhere else in their mansions— so when he publishes that, it produces a need on the part of the coal barons to do something. But even so, they refuse to do it if Teddy suggests it or if the miners suggested a commission to arbitrate that the miners said they'd agree with. 
So what does he do? He goes to J.P. Morgan, who is the financier for a lot of these coal barons, and he goes to them and suggests it. Teddy understood that whoever delivered the message, it would be more palatable for the coal barons. So they agree, and they finally get the agreement to have a presidential commission, and the grievances are worked out. But during that period of time, Teddy, remarkably, because he's usually so fiery, he was very patient. He had to persuade the public that there was a role for him there as the steward of the people. He was neither labor nor management. He was the people's person. And that was a really important breakthrough in what government's role could be in economics at that point. Yeah, he, he described it, or you describe it in the book, as his, his saying there were really three parties as part of this conversation. It was the, the coal barons, the miners, the unions who represented them, and the people. And that's where Teddy put his energy. And, of course, what's important about that story is that it set him off on a course for the rest of his presidency, um, determined uh, that the haves and have-nots were not going to continue to be, there wasn't going to continue to be such a broad gap between the two, an irony given where we're at today in American history. No, in fact, the echo of the turn of the 20th century, I think, is being felt today. And what Teddy Roosevelt warned the country about was that the rock of democracy would founder if people in different regions, races, religions and parties thought of themselves as the other rather than as citizens common to America. And it was much deeper even then in the Industrial Revolution. The rural people felt that the people in the cities were sinful. There was this huge gap between the rich and the poor. And the, and the, as I say, the, wor- the working class was in a mood of rebellion. A lot of immigrants were coming in from aboard. There were lots of tensions. But he somehow was able, in part because of dealing so well with the coal strike, but in part because of his own person, to encapsulate all of those different anxieties into what he called famously the square deal. So he made sure that people saw it's not just for the rich, it's not just for the poor, it's it's for the country. It's not just for the capitalists, not just for the um, labor, it's for the country. And, And that capacity to speak in those short, homely phrases he was a colorful character. I mean, yeah. he was as entertaining. If anyone were to come on the scene today, I think, and take on President Trump, Teddy Roosevelt would be the guy. He oh. would know how to tweet. He had that, you know, <laughs> speak softly and carry a big stick. Don't hit until you have to. Then hit hard. Oh, your description of him on the uh, the charge in the Spanish-American War is a rem- it's phenomenal, the way that he rallied his troops and raced up the hill in the face of uh, Spanish guns. And he always wanted to be a courageous person because he'd been such a timid little kid. So he used to read books about explorers and, and people who were great in battle. And then came his chance. And he did it. He was behind on a horse. And that's where the captain was supposed to be. He was riding back to of riding the, the back. infantry. But he saw that they were going too slowly up the hill. So with this horse, with a red bandana on, <laughs> he goes right to the top of the hill, and then they follow him. The great thing, though, is showing his self-deprecating humor, which is something so missing often in our politicians today. A famous journalist writes a memoir of his experience in the Spanish-American War. I mean, he writes a memoir of his experience in the Spanish-American War. A famous journalist reviews it, and he says that Teddy placed himself so much in the middle of every action of every piece of the battle, he should have called the book Alone in Cuba. (laughs) So what does Teddy do instead of getting mad? He writes the journalist back. He says, I hate to tell you, but my family and my intimate friends are absolutely delighted with your review of my book. Now you owe me something. I've always wanted to meet you. Come and meet me in in Washington. It was great. It's uh, being able to laugh at yourself. Abraham Lincoln had that quality. Oh, one of my favorite things when Abraham Lincoln was in a debate and somebody yells at him, Lincoln, you're two-faced. And his immediate response was, if I had two faces, do you think I'd be wearing this face? (laughs) Think how much our politicians could gain 
if you could have a self-deprecating sense of humor, especially in this anxious time right now, to be able to look at yourself from the outside in and to criticize yourself, then you, that's how, again, you can grow from that by learning through that experience. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I, I, I hadn't thought about it quite uh, with specificity, but I've covered a lot of presidential campaigns, and I can think of the candidates who Bob Dole was able to laugh yeah, about. Now, yeah. Bob Dole could also be incredibly withering right, in, the, right. in the very funny jokes he told about other people, but Dole did have the ability to laugh at himself. I won't bore you with going through others because we're here to talk about your book. I know we're jumping around, but you know what? I'm fine with that because you have so many great stories that the stories stand on their own. So I want to go back just a little again. You uh, Clearly, the Emancipation Proclamation was the crowning achievement of uh, Abraham Lincoln's. He had been anti-slavery from the time he was a young man. He made the decision that he would fight slavery every way he could. And of course, as we all know, he gets to the White House and it's not as easy as he'd like it to be. But the Emancipation Proclamation gives him the chance to put his feelings into policy. And you talk about the moment at which he's about to sign the document. Tell us about well, it's on New Year's Day in 1863, and that moment was so important to him. He really felt that this is where he had done what he'd hoped. And, in fact, he later talks to his friend who was with him when he had that near-suicidal depression and says, maybe in my, my fondest dreams have been realized with this. But as he went to sign the Emancipation Proclamation, his own hand was numb and shaking because he had shaken a 1,000 hands that morning at a New Year's reception. So he put the pen down. He said, if ever my soul were in an act, it is in this act. But if I sign with a shaking hand, posterity will say he hesitated. Ugh. So he waited and waited until he could sign with a really unusually bold and clear hand. Oh, that's a fabulous story. Lyndon Johnson, to again skip around a little, you're okay with that, aren't I'm you? I'm more than okay. okay. They, this, is, this book could be read in lots of different ways. That's you could really read right. all the Lyndons together. You could read all the FDRs together. It's meant to be something you can dip in and out of. And... And because it's not so fat, you can take it to bed at night. As I was teasing you before, a woman wrote me after reading Bully Pulpit yeah. saying she read it asleep at night and it broke her nose. <laughs> so Linda Johnson, you know, we talked about, you talk in the book about the uh, various uh, trials and tribulations of your four guys. And on the surface of it, Linda Johnson sounds like the most innocuous of them all. He lost a race for the U.S. Senate in Texas. But you point out, that sent him spiraling into a deep depression. And given who Lyndon Johnson was, that's not as inconsequential as we might think. Right. At, cer at a certain level, it seems ludicrous to compare it to what happened to Teddy Roosevelt losing his wife and mother, Lincoln's suicidal depression, and FDR's polio. But losing that race, he thought, was a repudiation of himself. And he was a political figure from the time he was four years old. I mean, you watch him even in college when he decides the way to get power is to get close to people who have power. So he gets himself on the janitorial crew outside the president of the college's office. He's mopping the floor. And the next thing you know, he's the clerk. Next thing you know, he's the assistant. Next thing you know, he's running the president's <laughs> office. So for him, power and moving upward had been a dream from the time he was young. And so he moves from the Congress to the Senate, he thinks. He loses that election by a very, very close vote. And then he does spiral downhead. He loses his progressive New Dealism. He goes for money instead of power. He becomes a wealthy man in that period of time, becomes more conservative to fit Texas, and, and does accumulate power. And he becomes the most powerful majority leader in the history of the country, absolutely understanding how to move up through that Senate ranks. 
But then in 1955, he suffers a second adversity, which is much more serious. He has a massive heart attack. And in the depression that follows after that, he asks himself, what if I died now? Have I done anything to be remembered by? The same thing Lincoln thought about. I mean, all these people are thinking about not legacy in the way we think about it. It's will my story be told? In other words, will I keep living on in other people's minds? And then right then he starts going for civil rights in the Senate. He gets the first civil rights bill through the Senate. And then in the presidency, that becomes what he wants to do. He's obviously aware in Dallas after Kennedy is shot, he's carrying an enormous burden uh, stepping into the the presidency. And the way you and, and other writers, of course, have described that period of time for him this guy who was so full of himself in so many ways, uh, so so uh, virile, so certain of direction, it does seem to be a moment where he is served well by a certain humility. You think that's true? Oh, I think it's absolutely true. I mean, even deciding to keep the Kennedy staff, which may have turned out badly for Vietnam, but was very good for the continuity of the country at that time— and he treated them with such deference. He knew what it was like for him as vice president to feel on the outside in. So he wanted them to feel that they were in the inner circle. But that very night when he comes back from Dallas and he's in his bed with three aides watching the television coverage of the JFK assassination and then Lee Harvey Oswald, he decides, I know what I'm going to do when I get in here. There's five things I want to accomplish. This is where vision comes in again. He said, first, I'm going to get the tax cut through, and then the economy is going to expand, and then we'll have room to do the other things. Then I'm going to get that civil rights bill that's been stalled in the Senate that's not going to go anywhere under Kennedy that I think I can get it through. Then the next thing is voting rights. Then the next thing is I'm going to get old Harry Truman's Medicare through, and then finally aid to education. And all five of those programs in the next 18 months would be into law. His ability to deal with Congress was just remarkable, and I think people are now— crediting even more given the broken Congress that we've had for such a long period of time. We took it for granted when he was there that all this bipartisan legislation, bipartisan always would pass. You've written about it in a way that's really compelling. And of course, Master of the Senate is a remarkable book study of how Lyndon Johnson did just what you're saying, how a Southern senator could make these things happen that were impossible at the time in a bipartisan way. But he, part of it was the force of nature that he was, right? I mean, you worked with him. He was a fearsome individual and not to be denied when he wanted something. I think he would, he would say that what convinces his conviction, and he really believed in, the, in civil rights. He thought it would help the South as well as the North. And when he went to realize that the only way he could break the filibuster that the Southern Democrats would be launching would be to get the Republicans— So he goes after Dirksen, the minority leader, and it's brilliant. You know, he sits around, he trades him everything. You can have an ambassadorship. You want some Peoria. You want a postmastership. Whatever you want, I'll come to Springfield. But then he says to him, but you know, Everett, if you come with me on this bill, 200 years from now, school children will know only two names, Abraham Lincoln and Everett Dirksen. (laughs) How does Dirksen resist? But he does bring 22 Republicans to join the Democrats, break that filibuster, and Johnson gave him the credit he deserved. And he gave the Congress the credit the Senate it deserved, and he knew that something big had happened. And once you get that fulfilling sense, then he wanted to go next on voting rights, which he did as well. You know, another thing that I thought was fascinating about your book is um, some of these presidents, some of these guys, modeled themselves on others in your book. Yeah, it's almost like a family <clears throat> tree. I didn't realize it till the end. I mean, LBJ's hero was FDR. In yeah. fact, He had met him when he was a young congressman. The two of them really got along well. In fact, FDR said 
that when he saw Lyndon Johnson, he thought maybe that's the kind of politician he would have been if he hadn't had the Harvard background. He loved this sort of bucking bronco. <laughs> and he predicted that if the South ever elected a president, this character might be the first one. And then FDR's hero was Teddy Roosevelt. He just modeled himself on that extraordinary ability to communicate to the country and the, and the, you know, the sense that he was the center of attention. And he was related to him distantly. And, of course, Eleanor, his wife, was his niece. But he loved the energy of Teddy. And then Teddy's hero was Abraham Lincoln. Yeah. In fact, during the coal strike, he actually read that summer eight volumes of Nicolay and Hay's biography on Lincoln. And he would talk every day about, if I could do this like Lincoln did, I'd be better off. Lincoln's hero, of course, is George Washington, the founding father. So it shows how short our history is. But it's a wonderful thing for the presidents to look back to other presidents to learn from. Because it's a very small club these presidents are. Yeah. In. And if you can learn from history, um, you just become a larger person. You're not starting all over again what you're doing. Can we step away from the book for just a few minutes? Of course we can. You went to work for Lyndon Johnson. Tell us that story. Well, I was a graduate student at Harvard, and I got a White House fellowship, a wonderful program. Colin Powell was a White House fellow, Wesley Clark, in different years. We had a big dance at the White House the night we were selected. He did dance with me. That Not that peculiar. There were only three women out of the 16 White House fellows. But as he twirled me around the floor, he whispered that he wanted me to be assigned directly to him in the White House. But it was not to be that simple, for in the months leading up to my selection, I'd been active like so many young people in the anti-war movement, and I'd written an article against him with a friend, which we'd sent to the New Republic and hadn't heard anything, but it suddenly appeared a couple of days after the dance, and the title was How to Remove Lyndon Johnson from Power. So I was certain he would kick me out of the program. I knew enough about this character to know. But instead, he said to his aides, oh, if, bring her down here for a year, and if I can't win her over, no one can. <laughs> so I did end up working for him in the White House and then accompanying him to his ranch to help him on his memoirs those last years. And there's no question that's what made me a presidential historian. I saw him at a time in his life when he was sad and he had time to talk in a way that he wouldn't, knowing that his legacy had been cut in two by the war, but still hoping that his domestic achievements would be valued someday. And, and he talked to me, and I was there to listen. And it was an extraordinary experience. Yeah, you watched that decline during Vietnam. Where did his—what happened to these great leadership skills that he'd exhibited? Yeah, it's, it's almost a mystery. I mean, it's almost as if the epic failure of his leadership on Vietnam was the direct opposite of his success in domestic politics. And I think part of it was that he didn't understand the world at large. Even though he traveled somewhat as vice president, his heart was always at home rather than somewhere else. But also it was that when you have to succeed in something as a leader, you have to have a vision of what you want to succeed. In the case of Vietnam, he was just trying not to fail. Each time he would be presented with, you have to get more troops in there or we're going to lose this war, he would then incrementally add the troops without ever seeing what the end result was going to be. And most importantly, he also thought he could treat the situation in Vietnam like he treated the Senate. Maybe he could sit down with Ho Chi Minh and offer him a Mekong River Delta project, and that would make him no longer want to fight the war. But most importantly, he never shared the full extent of the war with the American people. He was always talking to the people during the domestic stuff. But you can't send sons and daughters to fight without their understanding the meaning of a war. That's why Lincoln's gift for language was so important, to give that struggle and meeting that made people understand why it was worth so many people dying to end that sin of slavery. We're going to take another break, but in a moment we'll have more with Doris Kearns Goodwin. Welcome. 
Welcome back to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Let's get back to my conversation with Doris Kearns Goodwin. Her new book is Leadership in Turbulent Times. You tell a uh, very poignant personal story in uh, ter- Leadership in Turbulent Times, and it's I'll share with our listeners. Um, you were in the White House with another fellow, Tom Johnson, former president of CNN, publisher of the L.A. Times, and who was a fellow with you. Uh, and we just saw Tom a little while ago. Right. He's been a guest on my other show, Two Way Street, and people will remember Tom from that. Um, and he, you know, as we sat, as we talked in my office before you came into the studio, he said, I want to pull, I want to share with you a passage. And he pulled exactly the passage about you and Johnson that you suggested I, it was okay if I read it to you. Can I would I? love for you to read it. On his last day in the White House, Johnson called me into the Oval Office. I need help. He said quietly, part-time as you wish, on weekends, during vacations, whatever you can give. This time I had no hesitation. Of course I will, I said. Thanks a lot, he replied, adding, now you take care of yourself up there at Harvard. Don't let them get at you, for God's sake. Don't let their hatred for Lyndon Johnson poison your feelings about me. I turned to go, but he called me back to say one more thing. It's not easy to get the help you need when you're no longer on top of the world. I know that, and I won't forget what you're doing for me. Here again, the humanity of a man who was on top of the world, the most right. powerful person in the uni- in the world. And I'd like to think that my chance of seeing him in those last years with that sense of sadness opening up to me in ways he never would have had I known him at the height of his power. He wouldn't have had the time to talk to me that way that it fired within me the drive to understand the inner person behind the public figure that I tried to bring to each of my books, to bring them alive with all their strengths and their weaknesses, but not to be judging them at every moment from outside in, just looking at them empathetically and presenting them and letting the reader come to their own conclusions about them. So with, without that experience with Johnson, I would have been an historian but it probably would have been my my PhD was in Supreme Court history, so I might have been writing about those guys in the robes yeah. and the women in the robes now instead of presidents. I'm so grateful to him that he set me on this course because I, I really have loved every moment of it. I'd like to just ask you a couple more questions. I appreciate you giving me so much time. First, I want to make an observation and, and hear what you think. Uh, not long ago, Bob Spitz was in here. He's written a brand new biography of Ronald Reagan, the latest, 700 plus pages. It's a very entertaining read. But um, as he said in our studio, he, he did our show live, which meant that we had people on Twitter and on our Facebook Live page who were able to comment as the show uh, went on. And we had people who, were, who wrote us things saying, I'm turning, I don't want to hear about Ronald Reagan. He was a terrible president. So it leads me to a question for you as a historian. Have we reached a point of tribalism that is so extreme that we now are bifurcating our ability and willingness to look at the history of our presidents and other leaders on the basis of whether we were for them or against them? I mean, that's really scary if that's so. I mean, I I, I haven't encountered that. Um, but if it's so, then we're not going to be able to feel that we even have a common past, much less a common present. No, there's, there's no way in the world that you shouldn't value reading someone about Reagan, reading somebody about Jackson, even if you're mad at him for what he did for other things. Yeah. You have to just be able to absorb the context of the time and see why did these leaders do what they did 
and then see how we got through it. Oh my God, no, that's that's scary. I mean, yeah, that's what history is there for. I was really distressed by yeah, that. Yeah, me too. So here's the, of course, the big question. Um, you spent five years on the book, but in the last couple, you were dealing with uh, the ascendancy of Trump and then the Trump presidency. How did you reflect upon the president we're dealing with right now as you looked at the lives of these remarkable people? Well, I think there's two things. One is that I'd like people in reading the book to realize that the turbulent times we've been through before are worse than the ones we've been through now. Just because we have to believe we can get through this, there's just a sense among people of, will this be forever? But when you think about what Lincoln and, and FDR and Teddy and LBJ went through— and yet the bond between them and the citizenry was such that they were able to get through it. But also, I think, looking at the leadership qualities that were exhibited by these people, you do realize the absence of those qualities in Washington in general today. I mean, humility, empathy, resilience, um, connecting with the people, communicating stories to the people that make them feel united rather than divided— the ability to control emotions, which my guys had. It's not always LBJ at some times, but certainly the <laughs> other. And the one that's my favorite is they were all able to replenish their energies and, and somehow find time to think. And, and, and again, I think what's happening right now is that people are speaking without thinking. There's a coarseness to the dialogue right now. Of course, it was that way in the 1850s, but that's no answer because it ended up very badly. And I think somehow we have to believe we can get back to that time when the congressmen and senators were in Washington and they stayed on the weekends. They weren't running home to raise money for the poison in the system, the campaign finance things they do. We've got to get to a time when people in other parts of the country feel connected to each other. And there are answers. FDR used to say, man makes problems, man can solve the problems that he makes. I mean, I'm a big believer in a national service program, the mm -hmm. idea of possibly bringing kids from different regions and different parts of the country together and working on a common mission so they know what it's like. That's what the military provides for yeah. people. They come out of it stronger, I think, as a result of that. So there are answers to our problems. We can do something about campaign finance. We can do something about um, the way we draw congressional lines. Everything And the social media, which divides us even more. I mean, when I look at my guys, they were able to use the bully pulpit to appeal to the country as a whole, whether it was Lincoln through his speeches, which would be read so widely that it'd be reread aloud in country homes and and, and city, city homes and country farms because they'd be pamphletized. Teddy was the first person when the national newspapers come out. FDR has that voice of radio where people feel he's talking to yeah. them. And then Reagan and, and JFK were perfect for television when there's three networks. Now we've got this divisive social network. President Trump mastered it. But you can master it to win a campaign. The important thing is when you govern, you have to govern to bring people together. And that means he could—I wish he would travel around the country the way Teddy Roosevelt did on his whistle-stop tour, going to states that he lost as well as states that he won, talking about common duties as us as Americans. A president can mobilize that sense of common feeling if he uses the voice in that way. But that means that that has to be your goal rather than continuing to just campaign. That's Maybe they just— Maybe they should just be in there sometimes, I think, for six years and then let yeah. it go and let them become president. But it, you know, I think that a historian and a political journalists may share a couple of things in common. One, I don't think you would be a presidential historian. Were you not at some point captured by certainly the inspiration that you get from the men who have been president, the romance of what this country is? All, the, the story of America in many ways is a romantic Absolutely. story. And we have to remember that and, and, and remember that it can be that way again. Except I now go to the White House or Capitol Hill, 
And I think there were days when I used to think how lucky I was to work in these remarkable institutions. And they don't feel that way to me anymore, Doris. No, and I don't think they feel that way to the people that are in them. I mean, what I worry about now is it's almost like the people, suppose you're in a war for a long period of time in a country, you'll forget what peace is like. And I think what the people on Capitol Hill themselves are forgetting is what it was like when they worked together for something, when they could feel that fulfillment of a law being passed, when they were friends and when they could cross party lines. Um, And that's the worry. If those people begin to feel disillusioned, just like you do going there as a journalist, then maybe we really just need to get a new crop of people in there (laughs) who will start at least hoping that it can be different. And and we'll 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 somehow be able to know that this is an incredible honor to be a politician, to be in those halls in Washington, and they better honor that yeah. honor. I want to close our conversation with a, a paragraph that, once again, if you don't mind my reading. No, I like how, your reading. It, it's I like you, your reading a lot. <laughs> thank you. It, here's how you close your book. As a 29-year-old, Lincoln worried that memories of the revolution and the ideals for which it stood were growing more and more dim by the lapse of time, and that's his quote. Through history, he had hoped that the story of our country's founding would be read of and recounted so long as the Bible shall be read. He considered history, an understanding of how we came to be, the best vehicle for understanding who we are and where we are going. Lincoln never forgot that in a democracy, the leader's strength ultimately depends on the strength of his bond with the people. Yeah. I mean, the amazing thing is when he wrote those words about the importance of reading the revolution ideals to your children, it was at a period when there was mob violence in the country in the 1830s. And there were people who were anti-slavery, people were being killed. There was lynchings in the South. And he called for the rule of law to be reestablished. And he worried that in such a time of anxiety, that's the time when a dictator could arise, a person who might try and tear us down rather than build us up. So the way to do that was to remember the ideals of the country, remember what democracy stood for, remember the revolution. And I would say the same thing right now. It's so important to remember these people who really did try to make the country a better place. What kind of leaders were they? When we look at who we now elect as leaders, we can't just be doing it on the basis of who says something funny in a debate or who raises the most money you know, or who promises anything. It should be what kind of leaders have they already shown themselves to be? They've all come from somewhere. You can look and see, do they have empathy, humility? Can they acknowledge their errors? Did they build a team where they had strong-minded people who could argue with them? Did they infuse purpose to that team? Was their ambition greater than for themselves? And we have to have almost like a leadership index to look at our leaders right now because temperament and leadership is the key, character and integrity. We have to look for that in our political leaders because the system demands it incumbent upon us as voters as citizens, incumbent upon the leaders, as Lincoln said there, is that they understand the bond they are supposed to have with the American people. Absolutely. Leadership is a two-way street. It's the leaders and the citizens working together, and it has to happen again. We've got to move toward that point. I'm still optimistic. I still believe when you look at the history of this country, you never can count this great country out, and, and this nor our democratic system as you know, Churchill said it's it's the worst system in the world or something. Can't remember the quote, but it's better than any other. Doris Kearns Goodwin's new book is Leadership in Turbulent Times, the story of four presidents who faced crises that may have broken lesser leaders. Robert Jimison produced and edited today's show. 
I'm Bill Nygut. We'll be back with another live Political Rewind next Monday at 2. In the meantime, all of us on Political Rewind wish you a very happy Thanksgiving. <laughs>